Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. I struggled to know how to name this episode because although it's based on Nick Hooper's book, The Unbreakable Student, everything we're talking about is applicable to all humans. So regardless if you are a student, you're a young person going to university, or you're a parent of a student, or you don't actually have anything to do with studying in university at all, and you're just a human listening, and you want to learn a bit more about how to cope with unwanted thoughts and feelings, how to become unbreakable, understanding your own humanity, and understanding how you can treat yourself with more kindness when difficult things shows up, then this episode is for you. It can help you understand values and why they matter in your life. Why living a life in line with your values can give you discomfort rather than immediate happiness, but overall lead into a more fulfilling life. All of these things Nick talks to me about in our episode, so don't get too bogged down in the fact that he wrote a book for students, because there's much more about a book for life. Let's introduce my guest. Dr. Nick Hooper is an expert in clinical psychology and a senior lecturer at the University of the West of England in Bristol. He has authored many scientific articles, book chapters and books, including The Acceptance and Commitment Diary, which is published annually, and The Research Journey of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Nick is also a co-director of Connect, which is an organisation that offers psychological well-being curriculum for primary school children. In 2017, inspired by his students, Nick began to write a book of life advice to his son Max, which was to be given to him on his 18th birthday. Over time, that book slowly transformed into The Unbreakable Student. So let's dive into this conversation about life advice. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. It's a real honour to have you here. No, thank you for having me, Michaela. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you. Are we going to start by being on brand for the podcast, which is obviously about embracing imperfections, that I had to rearrange this uh, interview with you because I had no electricity in my house, so we couldn't actually record last week. So I'm very glad that I managed to find this opportunity to record with you and that, you know, we have to tolerate that things don't always go so smoothly. Isn't that right? That is absolutely correct. And of course, when you send that email saying, Nick, I haven't got any electricity, we can't do the podcast. Of course, I had to give you an easy time with that, because if I give you a hard time, then I've got to hold myself up to those standards, which means that in the future, when my internet goes down or when my electricity doesn't work or, you know, when one of the various things that can go wrong in life goes wrong, that, you know, I would have to then give myself a hard time. And so I think it's always good to be flexible with these things because what you do is you give yourself the space for mistakes and imperfections in the future. Absolutely. And it's a sense of also wanting to give out what you most want to receive, that if you want other people to be forgiving and allowing and compassionate towards us, we kind of have to start sending that message outwards as well, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we start on that note of having already had a few emails bouncing back and forth about how you're actually going to get this podcast to happen. But we are here and I'm really happy to talk to you about your book, which has just come out. So we're going to ask lots of questions about The Unbreakable Student, but not just about what's in the book, but also the process of how you wrote the book and how what showed up for you. Because there's there's a bit of crossover between how we both wrote our self-help books, even though they're very different topics. Uh, whereas obviously mine is about improving, you know, a couple's relationship and developing compassion for yourself and your partner. But there's a there's a crossover there in how we both were quite vulnerable in our books, which is hard for psychologists to do. So can we start at that point? How did you decide to be so vulnerable and open and share stories of your own suffering in the book? It's a great place to start the podcasts. I'm really happy to start in this place because usually when I do podcasts or interviews, it starts with, why did you write the book? Or uh, what led you to write the book? Or what's, what, what's the story behind the book? And so I'm really happy to start in this place because, in my opinion, the most special thing about 
the book is the tone with which it's written. And this tone is similar to what you did in The Lasting Connection. So I'm going to be eager to hear your thoughts about why you wrote your book in the way that you did as well. But from my perspective, the best therapists that I know are the people that are authentic and real and vulnerable and, you know, fellow human beings. And so when it came to writing my book, I wanted to be that because a lot of the self-help books that I see out there, they place the author on this pedestal above suffering, which according to my understanding of suffering just isn't possible. And so I really wanted to situate myself as a person, as a human being first and foremost, uh, that also goes through stuff, just like the readers would go through stuff, and, and, to, and to be that person that might have some ideas for what to do about it, not some concrete and foolproof plan for well-being, but just some ideas that might make a difference to people. And so in order to do that, I had to give myself to the book. I mean, there was another reason as well. The other reason for telling personal stories and, and being vulnerable is I needed to break up the psychology a little bit. And, you know, I wanted students when they're reading it to buy into me as a human being, but also to have a break from like the more uh, detailed and jargony type stuff. Um, but for the most part, it was about, it was about that tone and about, about writing it with the tone of the best therapists that I know in a way that I find lacking in self-help books that are often technique based and not just not real and authentic. And, you know, my book isn't an easy answer. Then there are no easy answers here. And so that, that those are my thoughts when I was writing the book. I want to give myself to, to the reader. I want them to know that, know me and know that I'm not perfect and, um, and hopefully take something, take something from my experiences and from my research and stuff. What about yourself? A very much similar um, roots into it, I suppose, that I sort of wanted to write my book as I would speak to people sitting on my sofa, hence why I've got sections called From the Sofa, where sort of describing mm -hmm. couples I've worked with and obviously changing the, the identifying details of them, and also having my story, because it, I think you write that the expectations for therapists and psychologists to be blank slates is, is outdated it's not necessarily mm. helpful to have someone who just sits there stares at you nods uh, we want someone who's also been in the trenches they may not experience the same things you have but knowing that they're sort of there to guide you and in a previous um, episode I interviewed someone who used the term guide from the side so you know I am right there mm. next to you on that side I'm having the same tricky brain as you do um, but I've kind of a few steps ahead, you know, I've experienced mm -hmm. a few things, I've got a few things up my sleeve that might be helpful. Um, another analogy I find really helpful is the, the Sherpa analogy of, you know, guiding someone up the mountain. You know, I might know where mm -hmm. to, to set my foot and what I've got the tools and equipment to get you up the mountain, but you still have to do all the walking up there. You still have to take all those deep breaths when the, the air is thin and it's hard to cope with the strain of the effort. So mm -hmm. I think that's where I came from, but it, it was hard. So I wonder how how you felt about that vulnerability when the book came out? Did you, did you worry about what other people in your profession, what your peers would say about the book? Good question. Did I worry? Um, yes and no. The no being that there wasn't a lot of vulnerability in the book that I was particularly uncomfortable with sharing. I'm thinking in chapter three, when I talk about my experiences as a young man and being a footballer, or I'm talking about chapter four, when I'm talking, when I describe my experiences in Cyprus, when I talk about chapter six and I talk about um, self-critical thoughts, I talk about some, some experiences where I've let myself down. I talk about chapter seven, where um, I describe how I wasn't a model student. And th there are other examples of experiences of mine that I'm happy to share. They're, I don't feel particularly vulnerable in sharing. And I, and I think that the beauty of sharing such examples is it, it shows to the reader, I'm just another human being. I'm not a Twitter profile. I'm not somebody that's intimidating to speak to or somebody that's been wildly successful and is wildly famous. I'm just another human being. And I get to show that in the book. The yes of that answer concerns the passage of text about my dad's in chapter five. That I was more worried about 
And don't get me wrong, I okayed it with my dad and love him. When I showed him the piece of text, he said, well, that's what happened. You know, he wasn't at all uh, protective about the information and he could well, well have been. And exactly the same for my mum. Like they really care for, for my best interest, even in this situation, uh, because they know that that passage of text is powerful and that it would sit well with the reader and they're willing for that to be out in the world despite the fact that especially these days where everyone knows each other's business people could know their business a little bit and so even though they were okay with it it did play on my mind for a while that it might be unfair to include that that passage of texts um and so that that has played played on my mind a little bit not particularly my vulnerability or knowing or, or people knowing that I have had struggles with with my dad, but mostly from their perspective and trying to to protect them. And so, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it is hard to put yourself out there. Absolutely. You become someone to that other people can know, know stuff about you and they can use that stuff in various ways against you in this very tricky social world that, that we live in. Uh, but it also felt important because just like with your book, Michaela, it was just really important for me to be real, for me to be thoughtful and nuanced and authentic with people, for me to write as I speak to my students. And this is, this is the sort of information that I would give my students in an attempt to build a relationship with them. And so that's essentially what I was trying to do with uh, personal and vulnerable stuff is I'm trying to build a relationship with the students and say, look, I'm just like you. And, and, and once I've got students in that place where they, they appreciate me as a human being, then I think they're in a place where they might actually listen to some of the stuff that I've got to say, which might improve their well-being. And so, um, yeah, it's a lovely, a lovely place to start the podcast to think about this because this tone, the tone is actually, in my opinion, what makes my book different from other books like this because other books like this they do tend to be more technique-based and, uh, and less real. And if you think that the book is tied together by the six ways to well-being, I didn't come up with the six ways to well-being. That exists out there in the world already. That, that's not a novel part of my book. Like Dr. Gitanjali Barsakot, she created those in the research that she ran. And then you think that the other big thing about my book is the inclusion of acceptance and commitment therapy principles. Well, I didn't make ACT. That's not what in my book, that's not what makes my book novel, even if I think that I write about those things in a particularly accessible and engaging way. Like what makes the book special is the tone and the attempt to really connect with the reader and build a relationship with them. And the way that I try to do that is, is by being human and telling stories and, and being vulnerable. I think there's a real talent and skill to curation as well. We think about sort of art curators, they haven't made any of the art in the in a museum, but they've curated an exhibition. And I think of the ideas in your book, or in my book for that matter, is a curation of ideas and how we package mm. them provides a result that makes it palatable, makes it accessible. Mm. And especially thinking of your audience, uh, you know, you're thinking of students who are also going to be overwhelmed with course literature to read, that which will be very technical and hard to read, that actually having something that serves as a bit of a page turner where mm. you draw them in with vulnerability, with being real, like this is a person who just got something I could listen to. It's almost like we've got the permission to open the door then and you, you can then enter into their mind. So mm. I think that that made a lot of sense of how you wrote the book and the tone you used to make it an easier read. I think we a lot of psychologists are missing a trick with how they write self-help literature in a way that they write it for themselves almost. Like, this is how what I want to read uh, literature and, and missing that actually the general public doesn't really give a shit about who's who said what they just want to feel better yeah so I, I love how you've put put your book together and making it a kind of an easy story mm. and so tell the listeners a bit more about the structure of the book and the kind of important messages you wanted to get out through this book so the six main chapters of the book they are derived from the six ways to well-being now I'll list these chapters for you and titles of these chapters. And afterwards, I think that your listeners are going to be thinking, well, I probably could have guessed that those things are good for well-being. And so 
essentially, these are the six behaviors that people with good psychological health tend to do a lot of. So chapter two is exercise. Chapter three is challenge yourself. Chapter four is connect with others. Chapter five is give to others. Chapter six is self-care. And chapter seven is embrace the moment. And so those are six things that people with good psychological health tend to do a lot of. Now, your listeners are probably out there thinking, yeah, I could have told you that. I could have told you that those six things are probably going to be good for psychological health. But the reason why I wrote the book rather than just writing a list and tweeting it is because a lot of people, even if they know those behaviors are good for them, don't do them. And the reason for this is because their minds can be tricky. So as we go to exercise, for example, we're going to get thoughts and feelings that are likely going to stop us from exercising. Obviously, that's for a certain proportion of people out there that struggle with exercise. There might be people out there listening right now that absolutely love going to the gym. But for many people, it's a bit of a chore and, and therefore their, their thoughts and their feelings, they can sometimes stop them from exercising. And it's the same across all those six ways to well-being, um, especially challenging yourself or connecting with people, for example. Whenever we try and connect with someone, we've also got to manage feelings of anxiety and vulnerability. So the question is, have you got the skills to manage your unwanted thoughts and feelings? And so therefore, in addition to those six ways to well-being, making up the chapters of the book, there's also various psychological principles, often taken from ACT, that aim to give the reader or the, the student the skills to manage their thoughts in, in a more functional way. And so that's essentially the structure of the book. There's also an introduction and a conclusion. The introduction section is a really important chapter in the book because it lays the foundation for everything else. It sort of uh, describes the pitfalls of avoidance as a way to try and manage unwanted thoughts and feelings, and that sets the stage for what comes afterwards. It was also a really important chapter because you'll know that when you try and publish a book with a trade publisher, that they want to see a synopsis in a first chapter. And to begin with, this chapter was the worst chapter in my book. And so I uh, had to work with my agent for probably a year to really get the argument tight in this first chapter in order for the publisher to really take an interest in it. And so it's, in some ways, it's my favorite chapter for that reason. The conclusion chapter then uh, tries to bring everything together and also tells a little bit of the story about how the book came to be in the first place. Uh, that is, I actually wrote it for my son uh, to begin with, and it, and it slowly over time evolved into The Unbreakable Student. And so, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the book, and hopefully written in a, in a tone that's accessible and engaging. And like you say, I really like that metaphor about the art curator, about presenting information. The information in the book isn't particularly remarkable, but I like to think that I've presented it in such a way that will make people want to read it, make it not sure to read it. And I had a bit of feedback a little while ago from someone saying, this is the sort of book you could read on a Sunday afternoon. And I was thinking, yes, like I've, I've managed to do it then because I didn't want it to be a study guide that people have to plow their way through and really struggle with. I want it to be something that is an enjoyable read as well. And so I like to think that I've that I've got there, though though time will tell. Mm, it's obviously early days of it coming out, but it sounds like it's been really well received. I've been reading reviews of it, and people are raving about how it's been written. So it's not just what you had to say, because these are, like you're saying, well-known, well-researched principles around well-being and thriving, but also how you packaged it, how you mm. said it, I think really matters. And if we, as authors, would stare ourselves blind at the, the amount of self-help literature out there saying similar things, we wouldn't get started. So I think one of the most helpful things I learned along the way was from one of my business coaches around how if you go into the supermarket, look at how many bottles of shampoo there are on the shelf. Mm. And there's, there's a bottle for every kind of hair type, right? Mm. And even if there's two of them there saying for bro for dry hair or greasy hair or whatever doesn't mean that you can't put a third one on there because it's your unique bottle that will have your branding your voice your message mm. and there is space for all of us so it might be that people who picked up your book would have been alienated by a very technical book and vice versa and that's okay mm. it's absolutely yeah. okay that's hard to accept though isn't it even as you're saying that i'm thinking what there'll be people that don't like my book no that's like a dagger <laughs> to my heart but you're absolutely you're absolutely correct 
Yeah, and that's that's where we're coming on to that topic of being hooked by thoughts and feelings that are showing up. So what was the mm. th- what was the thought that showed up for you when I said that? It was no, I want everybody to like my book. It was it was that, and uh, and yeah, it hurts, doesn't it, to to think well. When you do something like this and you throw a book out there, a book that has come from your mind and has been written on your computer at five o'clock in the morning when the dog is sleeping by the fire and, and you're writing something, you spend a lot of time thinking, I wonder if people will get something from this or I wonder if it will be laughed away. And then things progress and you end up getting an agent and you end up having a, a, a publishing house give you money to write a book. And then all of those things, they're ramped up because you're thinking, well, now I have to write something and it has to be damn good as well. But it's still just you. There's still just your computer and it's still words coming out of your brain. And so you're constantly asking yourself, is this any good? Are people really going to like this? Like, you know, when I'm, when I'm designing the book, the chapter structure, the inclusion of act and the tone, there's no guarantee that those things are going to work or be successful. And so it leaves you with this this absolute vulnerability and this real need for validation. I read every review on Amazon. I really want to know what people think because it seems to be flowing into my sense of self-worth. And so when you say to me, look, not everybody's going to like it, that directly is linked to that to that learning history that that those feelings of vulnerability and like oh no how am i going to feel if someone doesn't like it mm. even though statistically speaking that's definitely going to happen and so it is it, it is such a such a vulnerable experience to do uh, to do something like this absolutely and i think that's even the process of writing the book of going through the editing stage where mm. someone else says no that doesn't work um, you know, you can't have that word or you should change that sentence or that sentence, that paragraph is completely unnecessary. You know, the, mm. the phrase of killing your darlings comes to mind. Actually, No, it's not unnecessary. It's my yeah. words. I, I think I cut out 25,000 words for my book and oh. I kind of wonder when they said 25,000 words, I was wondering, no, I can't do that. Just, they're all going to be important. But <laughs> now after I've done that, you know, painstaking process. I can't say I've missed any of them. <laughs> they all, they yeah. were very good ones to get cut out uh, from the process. I think it's important then to acknowledge how human it is to be hooked by those thoughts and feelings you just described. The, the wanting to be like the the strive for external validation and the feelings we get when we don't we don't get it. Relating that back to your audience, how does that show up for students? You know, part of being a student is going through a, a constant evaluation process. Yeah, no, I write about this in the book and about how it feels as though within my own life, I wasn't ready for feedback at the time at which it was given to me. So within university, I would, for example, write an essay or write a report and I would get the feedback for it. And the first thing I would do would be to look at the mark. And if the mark wasn't very good, I tended to throw the feedback in the bin. But in doing so, I basically limited any chance I had at improving because feedback from our environment, from people in our environment, is the only way to improve. But feedback is horrible because feedback essentially tells you that you're not doing something properly and it tells you how you're not doing that something properly. And so for students and my students, from early days, I tried to create a different culture around the idea of feedback like feedback is our friend it is the way to improve so if you get feedback from people that you can trust then at least consider it and if you if you think they might be onto something then perhaps use it to change your behavior going forward of course feedback is is so tricky because sometimes you get feedback from people that aren't qualified to give feedback to us and so it's really about uh, filtering out the useful feedback versus the non-useful feedback. And that all comes down to like the credibility and the biases of the person that's giving you the feedback. And I say to my students, I know this stuff. I've been doing this stuff for 15 years and I blind mark your work. So even if I know you or don't know you, I'm marking in exactly the same way. So when you get feedback from me, you can trust it and you can trust that I'm doing my best for you. Don't get me wrong, all my feedback won't be perfect, but if you start seeing patterns of feedback across different academics, 
or even across different people in your life. If three or four people in your life say, you know what, that was really rude the way you said that, then maybe that's something to think about. And so it is, um, it is, I feel as though since I've got older, I'm better with feedback. And this book is an example of that because I'm constantly getting feedback from my agents, uh, from the publishing house, but I also sent the book out to 30 people before I sent it back to the publishing house for feedback. And it is really hard to read some feedback, but you want that feedback because that feedback is going to make your book better. And my book right now is much better for having feedback from people. Mm, absolutely, because it's it's a chance for growth, isn't it? There's a self-correctiveness mm -hmm. rather than self-criticalness that we kind of want to aim for there. There's not about having that as a chance to beat yourself up with a shit stick. It's more of a, a chance to improve and further your knowledge, change things for the better. And that can be a really hard process as, as an author, especially as a first-time author, inviting in the constructive criticism because some, some of it won't be constructive. And how, how have you dealt with that? Have you received any critical comments that have sort of wobbled you a bit? Um, yeah, yeah, I have. And I'll talk, I'll talk about that in a second, the, the critical comments. But the thing that I learned through the feedback process was the importance of values, actually. It was the importance of holding on to a value as a guide for my behavior. So like a value for me in, with the book was contribution. I wanted to send something out there in the world that was going to do some, some good stuff. It was going to be positive for people. And completing the book was, was a goal of mine. And I wanted it to be the best book that it possibly could because I wanted to contribute and I wanted to make a difference. Now, in order to reach that goal and to move towards that value, likelihood is that if I get 30 people to read it, I'm probably going to be able to get some useful stuff from it that is going to make it better, that is going to turn it into this positive thing that can, that can impact people's lives in, in, in a great way. And so what I held on to was the value whilst I was sending the book out for feedback, whilst I was getting that feedback back from people and having to go through all the discomfort and the vulnerability that you get when you, when you receive feedback. But the value is what essentially justified it. It's what dignified getting feedback because, because what's most important to me with this, in this project is making a difference. And so I was able to use that value to, to guide me. With regards to the question of people giving critical feedback, you'll know that when you uh, have a book, that the endorsers are a really important part of it. Because the endorsers, these are the people that write nice things about books, essentially. And then those nice things, they go on the inside cover of the book or even the outside cover of the book. It's really important because if someone walks past the book in the bookstore, one of the first things they do is they read what the endorsers have to say. And the better the endorser, the more likely that person is to buy your book. So it's a really important part of the process of publishing. And so I'm thinking, well, I know nobody that's famous. And so like, where am I going to find these people? So you, I don't know if you did the same, but I literally just started cold emailing, cold calling celebrity people with an interest in, in young people or mental health. And you could send out 200 emails and get nothing back. Like, obviously, celebrities are really busy. And so I assume that they just don't answer a lot of the contact that's reached out to them. I got quite lucky with some of my endorsers, but there was uh, one endorser in particular who was a friend of mine from the US. And I sent him the book and, and asked him to endorse it. And he got back to me. He was this, I'd only had like two other endorsements at the time. And these were the first people that had essentially read the completed book. And this person got back to me and said, Nick, there are loads of things that I would change about your book. Is there any way that you can do that at this point? And, wow. and, and you can imagine as a first-time author, as a young academic, as a person that really is trying to put together something that he can be proud of, my word, that stuck with me for days and days and days. And I actually messaged a person back and said, I can't change anything at this point. Um, if the book isn't uh, something that you feel comfortable endorsing, then obviously that's no problem at all. It won't impact our friendship or whatnot. And then I, I actually didn't get a reply to that email, which of course made me think that, oh, your mind goes to all sorts of 
crazy places at that point but it, it made me think that that my book was was not very good and of course i had already suspected that because my own mind can be self-critical and then to have someone else and someone i respect a lot uh send me such an email it really it really wobbled me wobbled me for a while uh, and so yeah it, like how do you how do you manage that there's no there's no magic wand to take away the discomfort and the vulnerability that you feel after something like that happens all you can do is is keep going and keep trying to respond to feedback but also reading over your work and and trusting your own gut about whether what you've written is useful and what i would say is that most of the time that i read over my own work i thought there's something good in this there really is and so yeah it was a it was a hard a hard patch for me that was mm. it's funny that you said that trust your you got your intuition there because as you were speaking i was thinking that word trust came up for mm. me because i'm thinking of when you've built something that you put such deliberate careful thoughtful action into you know starting with being sort of you know a collection of life advice for your son merging into sort of um, you know, what the, essentially the unbreakable student turned into, mm. trusting that you put that out in the world for, for a reason, that there was a purpose behind that and that was true to you, even if other people don't like it. And that can be a really uncomfortable process. So you've used the word discomfort twice, which mm. I think often shows up when we try to do things in line with our values, um, especially if other people are not aligned or other people don't necessarily give that external validation of the like. You know, mm. the classic Facebook thumbs up like icon, which I read that the person who invented that has um, bitterly regretted inventing that <laughs> because of the harm that that little thumbs up like button has had for yeah. people's mental well-being. So we are driven by that as humans. We want to be liked. We want to be fitting in. We want to be endorsed. Mm. So when people don't do that, of course, we're going to wobble. So I guess sort of, like you're saying, there's no easy answer to fix that. Often we kind of, people say stuff like, I don't worry about what people think about you, you know, just do your own thing. It's like, of course we worry about what people think of us. There's a human yeah. thing to do so. We we are tribal uh, creatures after all. So mm. I think it's really powerful that you shared this and that it's not deterred you from putting it out into the world. You still sort of came back to your value of contribution. Absolutely. And values are obviously very important within acceptance and commitment therapy. So for those listeners who don't know enough about ACT and, and values, do you want to explain a bit more about why that matters to to students specifically, why do ma values matter? For, for me, this is my personal answer to that question rather than like a textbook answer. Values matter because they are not linked to successes. So specifically, values are ongoing qualities of action. What sort of qualities do you want to bring do you want to embody in life? How do you want to treat people? What standards do you hold yourself accountable to? Is it compassion or is it generosity? Is it persistence? Is it um, you know, hard work or is it creativity? Like what are the qualities that you would link or most wish for or most wish to embody in the world? Now, if, for example, you come from a working class background, and society is structured in such a way that makes it hard for you to achieve concrete things that doesn't change your values and how you can live in line with them. If a value of yours is compassion, you can be compassionate no matter who you are and where you come from. You can be generous no matter who you are and where you come from. And that is why I love values and why I think they're important is because they matter for everyone. Within acceptance and commitment therapy, the core point of acceptance and commitment therapy is to help people to live a life that's in line with their values more. And of course, as we try to live a life that's in line with our values, we're going to get uh, some unwanted thoughts and feelings. And so a, a, a lot of the ACT model is about how to manage or more functional ways to manage your unwanted thoughts and feelings so that you can still move towards the things that are important to you and be the sort of person that you want to be in the world. What could be functional versus dysfunctional ways of managing unwanted thoughts and feelings that show up for students? I think that my primary answer here would be the dance that happens between avoidance and willingness. And so if 
students have unwanted thoughts and feelings, then their, their primary strategy for managing such unwanted thoughts and feelings would be to do things that try to make those unwanted thoughts and feelings go away. So imagine they've had some conflict with a classmate or something and they get home in the evening. Maybe they eat a few tubs of Ben and Jerry's to try and make the thoughts, the negative thoughts and feelings go away. Or maybe they drink a bottle of wine to try and make the negative thoughts and feelings go away. So they'll do things to try to not have their unwanted thoughts and feelings. And those things that they do might have long-term consequences, especially if the way that they might deal with such a thing would be isolation or not going to class. All of a sudden now they're not learning, they're not engaging with their course, and they're also not socializing. And this is just an attempt to not feel certain things and not think certain things. Other, the opposite uh, strategy of managing unwanted thoughts and feelings would be, would be a willingness to have them and understanding that unwanted thoughts and feelings are not abnormalities that we need to get rid of. They are part and parcel of being a human being. They, they are going to be with us a lot of the time, and we don't have to fight with them. We can take them with us. Of course it's not nice. Of course they're not nice. But there's no way to get rid of them. And, we, and ways that, that get close to getting rid of them are usually dysfunctional in the long term. And so it's possible to pick them up, to put them in our pockets, and to keep doing the things that are in line with our values. So if our education is important, and if social connection is important, then isolation isn't going to work for you as a long-term well-being strategy. And so I think that that would be the main thing that I would be trying to get my, my students to understand, is to become familiar with discomfort, to not make discomfort, unwanted thoughts and feelings the enemy, uh, but to become familiar with them so that they can still move towards the things that are important to them while those, while those things exist for them. And I think that goes for all of us, really. If anyone's listening, thinking, I'm not a student, I'm not a parent of a student, I just happen to like this guy's way of describing thoughts and feelings, and it fits for all of us, because it's a human thing, you know, we are, we are all having these tricky brains that would like us to go for the short-term relief, rather mm-hmm. than sitting with the discomfort long-term, because it means doing difficult things. It might be mm-hmm. tuning into your thoughts, or feeling the feeling, of sitting with the body sensation, rather than numbing it with something that takes it away in the moment. Yeah, and I, I, I gave an example in the book, and this example is applied to students, but taken from my life as a 36-year-old man. <laughs> and so the <laughs> principles, they exist beyond university. So in that way, I think that a lot of people could get something from my book, even though it's written primarily for, for students. But the example that I gave concerned a social situation. Like I tend to be socially anxious when it comes to gatherings and stuff. But I also value human connection, and I, I like people. Um, and so it's a really weird place that I find myself in. So if I get invited to a party, I usually say yes because I value human connection. But what happens after that is my mind will feed me a lot of thoughts about how I'm not good socially and past stories about me socially and how there'll be other parties in the future that I could go to and I'll start getting feelings of anxiety and my heart will start beating faster and my palms will be sweaty and so all of these things are are happening for me just like they would probably happen for a student in freshers week or if they're invited on a night out with with new people we're never going to exist in a social context where we're not meeting people and so that's the reason why the the example works but of course it going back to me there's a really easy way to avoid those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings i just described and that is to not go to the party and I just go home and watch films and I'll avoid all, all that not nice stuff that's inside me and inside my head. But of course, although I'll feel relief immediately when I get home, the next morning I'll probably feel rubbish. And the reason is because I would have moved away from my values. I would have moved away from uh, human connection, which is just something that's, that's really important. And so that dance that happens between avoidance and willingness is the primary thing that I try to teach people and that I try to teach my students. And then after that, then we might get into a diffusion, which is an act technique, or we might get into self stories or a bit of mindfulness, what is it and why it might be useful, or even uh, some self-compassion, which I also uh, wrote about in the book, which 
it's an important it's not an explicit part of the act model but it's there if you if you look carefully enough mm. i think it's been more and more added uh in mm. later renditions of, of act um uh, because it's, it sits very very well within sort of the buddhist philosophies that act obviously yeah borrow things from as well as sort of eastern philosophies so i guess you know when you're describing this it also paints a picture of you know what, there's no wonder that you want to avoid. There's no wonder that you would like to take the easy route because we all do. Hmm. And helping yourself to follow your values is a difficult process. It's It takes a lot of self-compassion for the times when you drift away. Uh, I know that you, you um, are very fond of Kelly Wilson and I quoted him in my book as well of the gentle returns. Hmm. When we drift away, we gently return back to our values, not with shaming and blaming ourselves, but with compassion. Yeah. You know, no wonder that I got that wrong. No wonder that I ate the three tubs of Ben and Jerry's after I received that negative yeah. review on Amazon. But now I'm re- returning back to continuing to put my wor- work out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. A lifetime of many gentle returns is what I've heard Kelly say. I assume he's written it in a book somewhere as well. But it's absolutely right. I think what happens is sometimes when we mess up, we spiral then. We view our messing up as a deficiency within us, and we think, what's the point in continuing to do this thing? I notice it most with people and dieting. People will be really strict with a diet for 10 days, and then they'll mess up by eating some chocolate or, or, or whatnot. And then for them, that signals the end of the diet. So rather than seeing the time where they let themselves down as a bump in the road, that is a really natural bump in the road when you're trying to do something difficult. They see it as a reason to stop doing the thing they were meant to be doing or that they were, that was important to them. And so I think that self-compassion is such an important tool there because it stops that spiral. It's like, all right, I messed up, but that doesn't change what the value and what the goal is here. I can still get back on it, you know, and it, it improves that bounce back ability. And flexibility and, and grayscale around that, that we don't have to be dogmatic about how we're approaching behavior change. And mm. all the six ways of well-being you describe have an element of that, you know, because there are habits, there are healthy habits and, and behaviors that we all benefit from, but they're all very difficult to, to, to do on a sustainable basis because we will drift away from it. Mm. We will get hooked by unwanted thoughts and feelings and we will get hooked by stress and busyness in life. And that takes us further away from doing these quote unquote good things for us. So I think being less dogmatic about good and bad and just like it's all it's all human, you know, the good, the bad and the evil. It's uh, it's all human. Yeah, it's messy because because humans are messy. Super and, messy. Uh, and so it's it's all right to it's all right to go for stuff. It's all right to mess up. It's all right to go to go for stuff again after you've messed up. You're, you're going to mess up. That yeah. if, if if you just go into And I say this to my students, I say, if you just go into your life knowing you're going to mess up, everything will be a little bit easier. And when you do mess up, you respond with a bit of self-compassion because beating yourself up ain't going to improve the the situation. Then that is going to help you to bounce back and to get back on the horse. Brilliant. That's a really important message, I think. Drawing things to a close for kind of the chat about students and, you know, what you put in your book, which I think is so applicable to everyone listening. So I hope that we haven't deterred anyone with the title of the unbreakable student but you know what actually i'm okay with that you know i've had to practice repelling uh, and attracting with my messaging and tolerating that some people will not like what i do and some people will not like this podcast and i'm okay with that because the people who do like it are the people who belong here so mm. i think it's that message of the the difference between fitting in versus belonging i think is an mm. important one so thank you so much for sharing lots of your wisdom and expertise around that. And now we just want to draw things to a close with the pause purpose play questions. That's so time from a little bit more vulnerability. So Nick, with all the things you've achieved, you know, with, with the level of expertise you have, writing this amazing book, how do you switch off? How do you find pause? Oh. <laughs> oh. This is a tough question. Because... Even as we speak now, I feel burnt out. Um, I only said to my wife this morning, I feel like I need to not work for a year. <laughs> I feel like I really need a career a career break. And I'm not that far into my career. I'm 36 years old. I think that I've become really bad at pausing, at switching off. There are some surefire ways that I can 
that I can pause or switch off, and that would be playing sport. And I play a bit of sport, and that that does it. What I've lost is the ability to rest, the ability to to do nothing. And I did have that. I was able to play computer games or watch films or just sit and read before, but now it feels so inefficient to do that. I now live a life of efficiency, and I don't think that's particularly healthy. And so that pause question is is me saying to you, it's a work in progress. I haven't quite figured out yet how to switch off, how to switch off again. And I think that's helpful because a lot of people listening will be hooked by similar things that, you know, what I'm hearing between the lines there is also that when you do try to rest or when you previously have been sort of speak doing nothing, now there are thoughts that hook you away from that, you know, must be doing something more efficient than this. Like, don't just Mm. watch a film. You've got a to-do list to do. So these are things that my community, you know, the people who are very high striving, overperforming, high achieving, people would often say as a blocker to to mm. rest, stillness, doing nothing, whereas they can often find pause in through more active things like playing sports. You can be losing yourself in the moment, being in the flow and kind of switched off from things mentally, but you're not necessarily being still. And we don't have to be in stillness to find a, a mental break. But it's something there that maybe this is an ongoing progress for you, something for you to come back to. If you do dare to listen back to this podcast, uh, mm-hmm. we'll play it to your wife. Then maybe thinking about putting that on the agenda. How can we find more pause in yeah, our life? Yeah, absolutely. That is something for me to... I think it's not even just a a pressure. I could get away with not doing so much. Uh, it's not as if I would I would have external people hassling me for stuff. I could get away with it. A lot of the things that I do, are chosen and i think that i get locked into a legacy a legacy story about mm. like i could watch this film now but like what's my legacy gonna be what am i how am i gonna show to my son that i can do special things in the world and therefore that he can do special things in the world but i'm gonna get there by working hard and by keeping going and by keeping pushing the boundaries and stuff and i think that sometimes what gets lost in my legacy uh stories are what are, what's the impact of working so hard on both my health, but also on my relationships? And what sort of legacy will you be leaving behind if you've managed to achieve a bunch of stuff, but you haven't managed to nourish relationships with the people that are most important to you? And so it's a, it's definitely something that I'm striving towards, uh, but mm. not quite there yet. It's a difficult word there, but, you know, I guess legacy can links with your other value of contribution. I want to leave something precious behind. And I guess sort of a reminder to you that the legacy you leave behind to your son to be able to teach him how to switch off and rest mm. and be in the moment is also an important legacy. As, as important, if not more, than the fantastic achievements you have, you've had in terms of your book and other, you know, academic performances. So thank you for sharing that very vulnerable uh, bit again I thought I, I did say I was going to push you a bit to vulnerability so let's think about then purpose because I think that's probably where that word comes up for you the contribution the legacy hmm. what does purpose mean to you what does purpose mean to me I don't know it's interesting it, it, you know I feel like you're almost asking me like what drives me to do to keep pushing the boundaries as in, why do I want to leave a legacy? Why do I, why do I want to, to push the boundaries and to do things that, are, that will be remembered and that will be seen by my son, for example? And so, yeah, with, with purpose, it's probably having a clear idea of what my values are and, and trying to move towards them. Mm. I think it's also about proving to myself that anything is possible and I can and I can do stuff if I put my mind to it. And so I think that there's there's that there as well. But a lot of it's to do with my relationships, I think. A lot of it is to do with I think I I have got this really keen sense of time. And I and, and sometimes I think I can see into the future and I can see me on my deathbed at 80 years old. And on my deathbed at 80 years old. I think the times that I'm going to want to relive or that I'll be praying to the gods to take me back to will be the times 
where I spend some time with my wife in a restaurant or where I play with my son in the back garden. I think it's those things that I'll be looking back to when I'm that old and it probably won't be my books or even my work. I think it's always the people. And so I think there's definitely been, I've, I've almost like got hooked into productivity and efficiency in the pursuit of legacy. But as I've got older these past few years, there's definitely been a shift in what I get purpose from. And I think that that shift is family and, and people. Mm -hmm. I can really resonate with that as well, that we things we think are so important in the moment, you know, when we fast forward into the future, you know, one of the really common act metaphors of your 80th birthday party, um, mm -hmm. where we look back, you know, being 80 years old, look back at your life. What do you think other people thought of you? What do you think of yourself? What would mm. you have done differently? And, you know, what are the bits that you really wish you'd savoured? And I, I also think about the the really interesting piece of research created by a palliative care nurse who asked people on their deathbed, what do they regret? Mm. And uh, the biggest regret, I think I might be paraphrasing this wrong, but was not living a life that you wanted, but living a life that you thought was expected of you. Mm. Uh, and living a slower life, there's more restaurant moments and more play mm. moments with yeah. your son may not get you as many books sold, but mm. it might be more fulfilling. So yeah. I guess that brings us to the playfulness here and thinking about what's playful to you. you know, how do you, if you struggle with the sort of the pause and the stillness, do you do anything that you feel is fun and joyful and playful? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's quite interesting, this conversation, because I feel that your listeners will be thinking, man, this guy's a bit negative, isn't he? You know, he's not really... Uh, not really the the model human being for us to be uh, to be basing <laughs> ourselves on. Um, play is play is an, an interesting one, isn't it? Because when you've uh, my son at the moment is six years old, and although I absolutely love spending time with him, a lot of the games that we play I wouldn't consider as play for myself. In fact, they're slightly soul destroying. You know, when you're playing teachers or doctors or pirates or any of those things, I'm not. I don't feel like I'm really living life to the full for myself when I am doing that. But that takes up a lot of my time because I'm uh, basically a young dad with a, with, with a young son. And so, you know, the times for genuine play, like going out with your friends or uh, playing sports or um, s some of those things, they, they don't happen so often these days. But that's okay. I think that's just a, a, stage, of, a stage of life thing that probably many people here can, that are listening can empathize with. In terms of my play, I like to exercise. Uh, that definitely um, gives me a bit of time to myself, which uh, which is important. I like to see my friends. I like to play sports like football and golf. Um, I like to challenge myself. So at the moment, I am trying to learn guitar and I'm trying to learn French. And those definitely bring a different sort of energy to my life that I that I really appreciate, and so would be more more play more play based, um, and so yeah, that's what I would say. I, I would say that the last thing that brings me fulfillment with regards to fun would be adventure, mm. and 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 the lovely thing about adventure is it's something that I love to do with my wife and my son, and so he's getting to that age now where we can do more stuff, we can visit more. He can sit in a car for longer without without moaning so much. Uh, we can go on flights and and whatnot. So we we we've, we we're able to have more adventures, and that is definitely something that um, that I would consider play or the you know the positive the positive aspects of being alive. Mm, this this the sense of discovery and experimentation, yeah. and seeing new things, novelty. Mm. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing all of those things. And again with the vulnerability and I, I'm sure that the uh, the guests won't see you in that light of here's this negative guy but more mm. here's this human guy who's been really vulnerable and open uh, and not put himself on that high horse the uh, the therapist high horse of I'm morally morally superior to you because that's not at all helpful and it's not how it works because we are human too mm -hmm. so the final thing to share to the listeners would be a little takeaway for them so either a permission you want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them what would it be a pressure that I want to take off them. It's hard, isn't it? Like a pressure that I can take off 
someone with just words coming out of my mouth in a house in, in a house in Wales. This is what I would say. I would say there are no easy answers. The whole world seems to have easy answers. Like self-help books, they give easy answers. Uh, the Twitter and Instagram and, and whatnot, you'll find easy answers everywhere you look. And easy answers just don't make sense because being a human being is messy and complex. And so if you're out there and uh, struggling a little bit, then I give you permission to give yourself a break. Yeah. Just to just to take it easy on yourself, to really have an appreciation of the complexity of life and how life is hard and how things can go wrong and how that is likely to impact you and your behavior. And that if you mess up or that if you're not feeling particularly good out there, then you get to be that complex human being that you are and not be a simple answer. So I hope that made sense. That would be what I would, uh, what I would say. I like that because it gives the it gives the permission to go easy on yourself, that to not expect to have all the answers and to not expect to just scroll past a positive affirmation on Instagram and hope for it to bring you eternal happiness. Mm. That's obviously not the end goal here. That's not the aim of the game. It's tolerating discomfort. It's not something we do just to step into eternal happiness because that does not exist, mm. as we know from Russ Harris's work on the happiness trap. So. Thank you so much for joining me for this in-depth, fantastic conversation. I can't be more grateful. No, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting to you, Michaela, and uh, best of luck with the old, uh, the old baby. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear listener, for getting to the end of this episode. I really am glad if you did, because some of the best bits were towards the end of this conversation. I know we talked a lot about the process of writing a book as well, but I hope that you also realise that that has helped us face some of our demons, both Nick and I, when we wrote our books. Because when you write a book, when you do something that is outside of your comfort zone, when you do something new for the first time, something that is scary, it brings you up and close with your unwanted thoughts and feelings. And receiving criticism, um, be it constructive or not, can also be something that helps you face some of your inner critical thoughts. So I hope that this was helpful to understand that this happens to everyone and not just you know you listening and us psychologists, we are fine, we never have any issues. I hope that you found that Nick's vulnerability and also mine over these episodes for the past year has helped you realize that we are human too and some of the best therapists are able to step into their humanity and also leave their problems at the door when they sit with someone in therapy, by still being a guide for you, knowing what it feels like to have unwanted thoughts and feelings, knowing what it feels like to steer away from what you actually think is important, and then gently returning back to it using psychological tools and skills. If you need more help with this, my team is ready to help you. You can reach out on the thomasconnection.co.uk if you would like to explore this in therapy. And if you would like to get Nick's book, it's called The Unbreakable Student, and it's out now. And we also talked about my book, so if you haven't come across that before, it's called The Lasting Connection, and you can also get that on any major bookseller. Until I speak to you next time, please do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash 
www.thomasconnection.com. So that's the thomasconnection.co.uk forward slash com. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.